Recently, I shared with both the vestry and the staff an incident that um, had taken place when I was in England. We happened to be having dinner one night with two very prominent evangelical leaders in England. And as I was asked to pray and give thanks for the food, I began by saying, Lord, your word said how beautiful it is when the brethren dwell together. One of the two interrupted my prayer and said, in unity. Well, (laughs) I got thrown off a little bit just for a few seconds, and then I kind of repeated the words in unity and continued in my prayer. Now, after I got over my irritation with myself for not using the whole text of the Scripture, I began to reflect on this incident. I began to think about it. In fact, how true it is that any two people can dwell together, but not in unity. Any two roommates can dwell together, but not in unity. Any two co-workers in an office can dwell together, but not in unity. Any two people can be in a church sitting behind each other or next to each other, but not in unity. Then I realized that the very psalm that I'm quoting, Psalm 133, is not focusing on the dwelling, but on the unity. In fact, if you go on and read a little further, you'll see that there is a special blessing that is invoked in that psalm for not dwelling together, but for the unity in the dwelling together. And then I began to think of the entire Scripture and the whole theme of unity. And I realized that when the Lord Jesus Christ made that statement in Matthew 18, 19, which I still don't understand everything about it, that when two come in agreement together, there is a special blessing, there's an answer to prayer. And then I realized what the Apostle Peter meant when he, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, said that when a husband and wife dwell together in unity, there is a blessing, there's an answer to prayer. The opposite is true, the prayer will be hindered. And then I began to realize that when the Lord Jesus Christ prayed His high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John chapter 17, He prayed for the unity so that they were blessed and that Jesus be glorified in their lives. And then I realized that in the book of Acts there are at least five times where the Scripture says when the church prayed together in one accord, miracles happened, answers to prayer took place, and God was present in a very special way. And so... What do you mean by unity? Does it mean uniformity? Uh, Does it mean that we obliterate our individuality? Does it mean that we should all be the same, like cut with the same cookie cutter, and talk alike, and think alike, and, and look alike? Thankfully, the Apostle Paul, in one word or two words, in Ephesians chapter 4, answers the question for us. Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, We're in the middle of a series of messages from the epistle to the Ephesians, entitled, Discover Your Treasure House in Christ. And we began first by seeing the content of that treasure house. Then we saw the sufficiency of that treasure house. Then we saw the benefits of that treasure house. Then we saw the conditions for claiming and appropriating the treasure house. And today, I want to show you the unifying power of that treasure house. So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses. You notice that in verse 3, Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace. First two verses, particularly verse 2, there is one bookend where he gives us four things that can ensure the unity of the Spirit, that can ensure having peace in your life and in your home and in your family and in your workplace or wherever you go. And then the other bookend, verses 4, 5, and 6, gives us five reasons as to why everyone in Jesus Christ can have unity of the Spirit and can have that peace. I mean, you've got to be a visitor from outer space to not recognize that our nation is divided, that the homes are divided, that our families are divided, there are brothers and sisters who are divided, there are churches that are divided, simply because we have let self-focus in our culture run amok. And the question that we now ask ourselves about everything and everywhere is, it is all about me. (laughs) Everything is about my feeling, how I feel. Everything is about my convenience. Is it really going to inconvenience me or not? Everything is about my lifestyle. How is that going to be impacted? Everything is about my personal preference, what I really like, what I don't like. And when self is at the center, listen to me, unity is out of the window. When self is at the center, peace will not exist, whether it be at your home or in your workplace. And that is why Paul gives us four virtues that he can be absolutely sure will produce unity and peace wherever you go. But first, he reminds them that he is a prisoner of Christ. Now, this is very important. I don't want you to miss that. Because you say, well, you know, Paul was in prison, he's writing. Why, why is he reminding them of that? Why is he telling them that he is a prisoner? Because he wants them to understand that his feelings, his conveniences, his comfort, his preferences have been all suspended and not by choice. <laughs> he said, I'm a prisoner of Christ. He's not the prisoner of Rome who are holding him in the cell. No, he was not a prisoner of the Jewish leaders who brought false accusations against him. No, he is a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please listen carefully. Paul was not feeling sorry for himself. Paul was not even asking for other people to feel sorry for him. Paul was not looking for sympathy from others. No, he is saying that because, as we saw in the last message, because I see all things from God's perspective, I don't count the cost. Because I view things vertically before I see them horizontally, therefore my convenience is not primary to me. Because I view all things from the light of Christ who died for me, therefore my circumstances are not going to get me down. Because I view all things in regard to how they affect Christ, therefore my surroundings are not my first priority. How different this is from our me generation. How different. When everything begins and ends with, how would that make me look? How will that affect me? How will that impact me? How will that inconvenience me? How is that benefits me? No wonder we're in the mess we're in. Instead, Paul is saying that if you want to experience unity and peace in life, You need to be asking these questions about everything you do, every decision that you make in your home and in your workplace, in your neighborhood, wherever you go. The question is, how will that affect God? 
How will that impact the name of Jesus? How will that benefit the work of God? How will that bless the kingdom of God? How will that honor, please, and glorify God? Only asking these questions will you be able to live worthy of the calling of the salvation that you have in Christ Jesus. The word worthy here is a word used to referring to a balance in scales. Back in the Middle Ages where I grew up, uh, we had those scales, you know, and the, and the guy would hold them in his hand and he would put the kilo in, in one side and then the goodies, whatever you're buying on the other side, and they have to balance. Now, if he's generous, he lets the other one tip down. <laughs> you see, that's, that's where the word worthy comes from here. On the one side of the scale, we have Christ and his gracious mercy that he showed toward us in giving us salvation free. On the other side of the scale ought to be our gratitude and our thankfulness. It ought to be a life that is honoring and pleasing to Him. Paul is saying that your life and mine should correspond with your high position that you have in Christ, that high calling of being called a child of the living God, that your life and mine should match that high and lofty place that we have been placed in, in Christ Jesus. On the one side, there is the one who loved me and saved me and redeemed me and called me and chose me and predestined me and adopted me to be his son and daughter. On the other side of the scale... There is my obedience, your obedience, that stems out of thankfulness, stems out of gratitude for His incredible love, not out of fear and terror, but out of gratitude and thanksgiving. And when total obedience takes place, listen to me, unity will be there. Peace will reign supreme. But how does this work in practice? How does this work in practical everyday life? Well, Paul gives us Four things. If you apply them daily in your life, if you apply them in all of your relationships, no matter who it is with, if you apply those four things, those four virtues, you will experience unity and peace. They are four in number. Look at them again in the text. Humility, meekness, patience, forbearing love. Why does he begin with humility? Listen, this is important. Humility is a vital ingredient in experiencing unity. It is a vital ingredient. That's why he begins with it. It is vital ingredients for having any peace, whatever you may be. The opposite of humility is pride. And beloved, listen to me very carefully. When pride sits in, you will have nothing but war and conflict. Think about it. How can a husband and wife experience unity and peace when each of them claim to be right all the time? Neither of them would admit or confess to being wrong. How can you have peace? How can you have unity that way? How can a family experience unity and peace when each member of the family views themselves, himself or herself as the most important person in the family? Fighting will become a commonplace. How can a ministry, a church, or any institution, any group of believers have unity 
when each person is in love with his or her brilliance and not in honor, preferring one another, as the Scripture said. How can it be? And Paul said it's an impossibility. You know, thoroughbreds, when they, as a group, face an outside enemy, they go into a circle, facing on the inside of the circle. They're all heads together in a circle, and with their hind legs, they kick the enemy. Donkeys, on the other hand, (laughs) they do the opposite. When there's an external enemy, they also circle But they're facing the outside. They're facing the enemy. And with their back legs, they kick each other. (laughs) So you got to figure out, are you a thoroughbred or whatever? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I think it's an important lesson for every family, for every relationship. And what is happening in our society, what's happening particularly among believers, is that when pride which is the very thing that kicked Satan out of heaven. When pride dominates a relationship, when pride sets in, we ignore the real enemy, and we begin fighting with each other. Listen, I know that pride is glorified in our culture. I know that, and you know that. Pride is getting all the glory in our culture. It's the highest honor in our culture. But you know, this is really not, it's nothing new. Did you know that the Greeks really did not have a word for humility? Until in the, the Christians in the early days, in the early church, particularly the Apostle Paul, he coined a word to explain humility because it did not exist in the Greek lexicon. There was no word to describe what the God who created the universe, the Almighty, the All-Powerful, did by leaving the splendor of heaven and born in a manger, lived in utter poverty, owned nothing except the clothes on his back. He had nowhere to lay his head. He died a criminal's death, and then he was buried in a borrowed tomb. There was no word to describe that in the Greek language. Rome glorified pride. Greeks did not know humility, but God said that humility is the very first secret for unity and peace. Secondly, meekness, or in some translations, says gentleness. Again, that's a word that is borrowed from the world of taming of wild animals, particularly horses. Tamed horses never lose their strength. After they're being tamed, they are just as strong, if not stronger. But after they're being tamed, their strength is more disciplined. Their strength is under control. Their strength is better channeled. I promise you, anytime you are listening to the secular media and some people using the word meekness, 99% of the time they mean weakness by it. But that's not what the Scripture means. The Bible teaches that meekness is one of the greatest virtue. Why? Because meekness means that when you have the power in your hand to take revenge and get even, but you choose to help instead. Meekness means that when you have the power to hurt someone who hurts you, but you choose to heal instead. 
Meekness means that when you have the power to destroy someone who wanted to destroy you, but you choose to build up instead. Meekness means is when you have the power to look down at non-believers and pagans and others, but you instead choose to view them with sympathy and with compassion. That's what meekness is all about in the Word of God. Humility, meekness, patience. Patience here means never give up. Never give up on God's promises. Never give up on God's promises. Abraham waited for 25 years. He went through all kinds of temptation, but the promise was fulfilled after 25 years. Noah waited for 120 years before he saw a drop of rain come down from heaven. Jeremiah was told to minister to people who are going to hate him, people who will not believe him, people who will mock him, people who will malign him. But he continued patiently ministering. The apostle Paul endured all sorts of hardships and imprisonment and beatings and persecutions, but he endured patiently because he knew that Christ will fulfill his promises for him. Humility, meekness, patience, forbearing love. I think most of you know the difference of the Greek words of meaning love. Eros basically means self-love. That's really what the bottom line is. It's love that takes and takes and takes and then takes some more. Philo is the reciprocal type of love. It's that love that gives only as long as it's getting. But agape is the love that is unselfish. Is the love that gives and asks for nothing in return. I'll make you a promise. You start practicing those four virtues day in and day out. Begin your day. Say, Lord God, help me to practice these four things. And if you're having war at your house, having war in your workplace, whatever you might be, you're going to begin to experience unity. You're going to begin to experience peace. Well, that's the first bookend. You practice these virtues. You'll experience unity and the bond of peace. But then Paul goes on in the last three verses, and he said, you know, it can be done. It's really doable. It's not something that is an impossibility. God does not give us impossibilities to live under these impossibilities. He always tells us that it can be done, and he tells us why it can be done. Verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, we can experience unity of the Spirit because of the very essence of of our faith, the very essence of the Christian faith. Because of that, we can experience unity of the Spirit and a bond of peace. Because our God is one. Our faith is one. Our baptism is one. Our hope is one. Our spiritual unity and our spiritual family is one. You see, we're not like the Hindus who have 23 million gods. No, no, no. We have one God. He is the triune God. He is one, not three gods. The three persons in the Godhead in perfect unity, not a hint of conflict, not a hint of disagreement. Each person of the Trinity has a unique role to play, yet there is not the slightest hint of disagreement or conflict within the Godhead. But that's not all. There is the Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit indwells us. 
We don't have two million or two billion Holy Spirits indwelling different Christians. No, we have one Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. And that is why there is a unifying factor. That is why we can be united in the Spirit, in the body of Christ. But that's not all. Is it this one faith? By the way, he does not mean the faith, the saving faith that brought us to Jesus Christ. By this, he does not mean the daily faith by which we live day by day, trusting in the Lord and His Word and His promises. No. He is talking about our one and only belief, our one and only doctrine, our one and only gospel, our one and only way to salvation, our one and only way to God, our one and only way to heaven. There are so many people, even in the evangelical churches today, who have bought into the lie that all the ways lead to God, all the ways lead to heaven. It is an absolute lie from the pit of hell. And Paul says, no, and a million no. There is one faith, and there's one way. But that's not all. There is one baptism by which we identify with Christ. You know, most people don't realize that The root meaning of the word baptism, baptizo, is to identify with. That's the root meaning of the word. Now, many people don't understand, and they get hung up on the method of baptism instead of the purpose of baptism, is to identify yourself with Jesus Christ. In the early church, when they were baptized by the Holy Spirit and every believer in Jesus Christ when they surrender the life and repentance and faith, they become baptized of the Holy Spirit. They become recipient of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we saw, is the advanced team that comes in and dwells in our hearts, that raises us up from our spiritual death to recognize that we're desperate, that we need salvation. Every believer, after they got baptized of the Holy Spirit, they got into the water baptism. Some of them got there as individuals. Others went as families. Whole families got baptized in the water baptism. What were they doing? What they were doing? They were identifying themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ openly and publicly. And in some cases, and still today, when they do that, they could lose their life. They're identifying themselves. So one baptism. But that's not all. He said, we have one hope. Not 200 hopes, one. All of those who are in Jesus Christ are going to the same heaven where Jesus is. Whether you go there through death or are you going to be around when Jesus returns to take us to heaven, there's only one hope of heaven that we can be sure of. Do you have that hope in your life? Do you have that assurance that if you close your eyes in death today, that you'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if not, you can be today. You can be today. One hope of heaven. But that's not only that, but he says there is one Christian family. Some members of that family like to kneel. Others like to stand up. Makes no difference. There are some members of that family, when they baptize, they sprinkle, others they dip. Makes no difference. They're members of the same family. Some members of that family are quiet. Others are rowdy. Makes no difference. Some are expressive. Others are not. We are one family. We all belong to one family. And in heaven, we're going to be one with Christ and in Christ. Simply because we have one Father. We have one Father. And therefore, we call each other brothers and sisters 
in Christ. There may be someone here today who says, you know, my family is in disarray. We have fights all the time. We have disagreements. Examine yourself. Are those four things, those four virtues reigning and ruling in your heart and in your life day in and day out, moment by moment? If not, today you can say, Holy Spirit of God, empower me that I may live with those four virtues in mind every single day. And the power of the Holy Spirit will be given to you to do just that. Or there may be someone here today who might have been a member in a local church somewhere, but they really have never become members of the one church, the body of believers from every generation, from every language, from every tribe, that one church that will be in heaven together, that body of Christ today, you can say, Lord Jesus, I want to belong to that church. Someone here may have mistakenly thought that all ways lead to God. After all, you heard it from preachers, probably you heard it from priests, you probably heard it from ministers. But today, you are convicted by the Holy Spirit. There is only one way, one Father, one Lord Jesus Christ, one Holy Spirit, one faith, and one way to heaven. Today, you can come to Christ as we pray and say, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive my sins. Forgive my sins. Accept me as a member of your church. Shall we pray together? Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I let my pride and my focus on me run amok. Lord Jesus, I have been faithful to you with my time, with my talent, with my treasure. Lord Jesus, I've been living my life with all that's about me. And Lord, I know that's the reason why my life the way it is. Lord Jesus, come. Empower me to live in humility, to live in meekness, to live patiently, above all, to live with agape love. If it is your prayer, Lord Jesus, come into my life today. I've been into religion. I've been into churches, but I've never received you as the only Savior of my life. Come into my life today. And you can be sure that God in heaven has not only heard your prayer, but he answered it. Lord, how I rejoice in the fact that the God who sits on the rim of the universe is our God. And he wants us to call him Father. Father, what a privilege and honor when people are confused and wandering aimlessly in the world. We have one hope, one Christ, one Lord. Lord, we rejoice in you. We thank you for all that you have done. It's all about you, Lord. And we give you praise. Come answer every prayer because of who you are. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.